How you doing? Was here with the Master of None podcast, returning again to your airwaves and your ears. <laughs> I hope you are well. Uh, happy Easter if you celebrate it. Otherwise, if you did get some public holidays around the weekend, uh, I hope you enjoyed those as well. Whatever you got up to, um, I had a, a four-day weekend, which was absolutely marvellous. Uh, and feeling, you know, I think, quite rested. Could keep going, obviously. It's always the case. You can always have a longer holiday. Um, but yes, back to work I go. And I thought, what better time than any to install another episode into the world of podcasts? Uh, okay, so a couple of things. I did attempt this episode last week and had uh, another situation arise of a technical nature. Now, I still have the file, but it's, it, look, it's too complicated for me to work out. Let's just say that. And I'm not going to fluff around because I don't think it's going to come out as fresh if there's any editing to do. I'd rather just take the episode, do it in, in a one speakeasy session, and and that's how it's uploaded, you know, and, and it sort of feels quite genuine and quite real. Like, you've just jumped in the car for a while and we've gone for a drive and had a bit of a natter. Speaking of which, I'm here to cross-promote another podcast that I've started with my dear friend Eero, and this is something that we're hoping to make regular as well. It it does, look, I've been enjoying doing the podcasts, and it was something that I had suggested to Eero before I had attempted it, thinking that it would be something that he would enjoy and be able to... I guess further that sharing of, of interests and hobbies and just have a, have a chat, basically. But the concept being that it's the two of us and we are having a conversation. It's an actual conversation, not this one-way thing that I've got going, which I love, by the way. Um, so we gave that a try. We did that. We, we did that last night, went for a bit of a, a cruise and had a, uh, a coffee and a bit of a conversation. I hope he doesn't mind me, me bringing it up. But uh, yeah, I am hoping to cross-promote it. And I think we probably will do that with each of our uh, little branches of what we get up to. But yes, it's going to be called Fly on the Wall, uh, pod, the Fly on the Wall podcast. And that's going to be something that uh, is, I would say, quite different because we're, of course, different personalities um, and also conversing too. So it's, I guess, a little more like we're just talking to each other as opposed to speaking to an avid listener. So hopefully that's something that works out. So over the next few days, if you listen to this one and you're interested and you'd like to have a a look at that, 
have a look out on Podbean for the Fly on the Wall podcast. And that'll be with myself and Luke. So yes, please feel free to have a bit of a, a squeeze, a bit of a listen when you get the opportunity. Let us know what you think. Let us know your thoughts, as you can do with this one as well. And we're fast approaching uh, the well, fast approaching number ten in terms of my episodes for the Master of None podcast, and also well and truly have cleared the hundred listens now. So. Congratulations, everybody, <laughs> and thank you very, very much for getting it up over that line. I'm sure it's family and friends and uh, people that I know, and look, if in amongst that amount there's somebody that I don't know, I, that is exciting and also is encouraging and makes me want to do it more. I think that that's, it would be great to grow the listener base and have some, some different people, and particularly from all over the world. That would be something that would, I don't know, it would be, it'd just be quite exciting to have to have that idea that, oh, somebody from the Netherlands is listening, or somebody from Bolivia is listening. Of course, the language could be the barrier, and I'm sorry I don't uh, speak all those languages. <laughs> but if uh, if anyone who, who is listening to an English podcast and enjoys it and finds this one, welcome. Welcome and welcome and welcome. And hopefully this isn't a bad representation of what one can be. I hope you enjoy it. So yes, we're up over 100. Let's hope that keeps on climbing. And yeah, we hit 200 much, much faster. Because that will just, yeah, will feel great to have that momentum. So I was getting a little bit of feedback from my dear older brother, uh, who lives overseas actually. And I appreciate his, his attention to the podcast and the fact that he will actually... Uh, faithfully listen to each one as they're released well not necessarily as they release but uh, he sort of makes sure that he does have a listen and I really really do appreciate that and it's nice to be able to feel that little bit closer in the fact that he's having that taking that time to listen you know who you are buddy and I really appreciate that mate love you and he gave me a little bit of feedback the other day and also a suggestion and I thought I would take that up and have a discussion about that today. Uh, However long that takes, it might be one of those two-parters, like the the music journey that I discussed back in, I think, episode four and five. Uh, And, yes, so he was saying, oh, I should talk about horror movies. Horror movies being something that I have really enjoyed, uh, and also my partner, my beloved and I, we, we do enjoy a good horror movie. When we get the opportunity to watch one, having children, having young children, can be very hard to to actually get a horror movie in there. But uh, you know, if you do get the hours to to be able to partake in one, it, it is a good experience. I'm not sure like good is the operative word, but yeah, I like something that thrills and scares within reason. Uh, I'm not so much into very disturbing views where it leaves a bit of a mark on you afterwards and psychologically you feel a little bit damaged or feel a bit bad for even the fact that you've watched it. Um, But yes, uh, pondering the the horror movies that I have enjoyed over the years and and some of my favourites, but also I asked him to give me his favourite because I felt that that was fair given that he was the one that suggested that as an interest and and that's what I'm hoping to do with other people's interests if you do get in touch and you can contact me 
either via comments on here or perhaps even Swamp Bastard Guitars on Instagram. Feel free to get in touch somehow and say hi. Sort of let me know that you do listen to the podcast. It'll be very thrilling. <laughs> uh, and, you know, give me your thoughts on something that you enjoy, that you, if you want to go into detail about something you don't even have to go into much detail but if you've got a suggestion for a conversation topic and you have something out of that that you are a particular fan of or let's say it's a favorite book favorite movie favorite place to go camping favorite place to holiday whatever it is and it doesn't matter how obscure if you let me know what you want to hear about and also your own viewpoint on that then i'm happy to bring that into it and uh I don't know, it's a nice way to put a little bit of a signature on the the discussion and where it came from. So keep that in mind in the future. So my my brother's favourite horror movie is 28 Days Later, and that's the one I'll start with, because that is a great horror movie. It's probably not an all-out scare fest. uh, I mean, you could think of probably a, a great deal of other movies that are made as like a, a slasher movie or a jump scare kind of film, uh, a, sort of a deeply disturbing psychological thriller, all of this. Now, 28 Days Later is probably hard to... It's hard to note. It's, I guess it is a thriller. It is a horror. It's a, it's a bit of a drama, a bit of a human drama in there as well. It's a bit of a post-apocalyptic sort of vision of the near future. It has a few things going for it. And sorry about that rattling there. I was going through a an unmade section of road. I didn't really think about how that might sound in the background. So I hope that wasn't too bad. Um, so 28 Days Later, uh, a Danny Boyle directed picture. Now it's Danny Boyle of uh, Train Spotting, uh, Slumdog Millionaire, Millions. Uh, I can't think of... Oh, Train Spotting 2, of course, as well. Now there's a bunch of others that I can't think of just off the cuff. But yes, he's, he's quite an acclaimed director these days. He's very, oh, Life Less Ordinary, that's another one, uh, that he's directed and, and gotten a lot of acclaim for. And he's got a particular style, a particular visual style, and uh, a snappy kind of editing style as well that seems to translate. And, yeah, I mean, I've always enjoyed Trainspotting. And it's a, it's a hard film to watch in parts, but there's something very accessible. It sounds strange to say, very accessible about Trainspotting as a movie. So 28 Days Later... Is a Danny Boyle uh, film. It's got uh, Killian Murphy, Irish actor, and he's the main the main character in this movie, where he's a bike courier, I think, and he's had an accident, fallen off, uh, hit his head, and fallen into a coma. And this is where he wakes up, and, and where we start everything is where he wakes up in a hospital that's been abandoned, and of course he's completely all of this situation is unknown to him he has no idea what's going on so he goes walking out of the hospital wondering what the hell has happened because the streets of London are abandoned it's it's all uh, dishevelled and junks everywhere and there's just cars pulled over and it, it's it would it, it's quite a good way to start the movie because it does give it that air of disquiet you just don't quite know what's going on and it's become apparent that a certain kind of virus has been released. Uh, now, I won't, maybe I won't go into too many spoilers as such because that would spoil the the experience for you people who haven't seen it and might decide to go watch it on the strength of this conversation. Uh, 
but yes, anyway, so some kind of virus has been released. Now, it's not a zombie virus. They're not undead, as is the popular kind of uh, thing, I guess, for, for these kinds of movies. But they are zombie-like in the fact that they are they look that way. But it's it's called the rage virus, and it sends people into this manic, permanent state of, of rage where they're not thinking like... They're not humans, really, anymore. They're just behaving like a, with one trigger, and that's just to be violent. Uh, so they're not thinking about eating, drinking, sustaining themselves at all, and, of course, lose all sort of control and recognising of their, their loved ones. So... Uh, that's been that's spreading around England very very quickly. It has spread around England and taken its fair share of lives. And then the the solution being, I guess, that it has to run its course. But uh, yeah, how do you avoid it? So it's great because in in that sort of maybe perhaps uh, lower key English style, as opposed to say a Hollywood type production. It's a bit more grounded and a bit more personal in the way that it plays out. And I think it was done on a fairly uh, modest budget. And you can tell that, but I think that that's also an appealing part about it as well. It has a lo-fi kind of quality about it that that works really nicely for what it is. Um, Brendan Gleeson's also in it. And I forget the actor's name. She was in... Skyfall with Daniel Craig as Money Penny, so she is in it too, and I, I apologise that I've forgotten her name at the moment. Just don't want to say the wrong one, so she's in it as well, uh, and also Christopher Eccleston, I think that's his name, one of the earlier reincarnations of Doctor Who. The, in fact, the first one when they the re- rebooted it all those years ago now. So he's also in it. So there's a few there's a few good names in, in terms of the actors that appear. They all do a wonderful job. Uh, so it's well, it's well acted, it's well grounded, and it just it has a nice real feel about it. Something within the realms of possibility, I suppose. So that's what makes it scarier. And I think uh, one of the scariest bits for me, and I don't mind saying it as a, I don't think it is a spoiler. It's just a scene that I remember that was particularly effective, and that's where the they're getting away so Brendan Gleeson lives in an apartment block with his daughter trying to eke out a fairly everyday existence uh, while this is all going on I guess staying clear of it as much as possible uh, and circumstances end up being that, uh, that Killian Murphy, Murphy's character ends up there with the oh, I wish I could remember her name the, the lady from Skyfall and they have to escape. They decide they're going to, you know, head out into an area where perhaps there's less of this going on. It's a little less intense. And so they have a black cab that uh, they use to get away. And there's a section where they have to pass through a tunnel. And it's quite a nerve-wracking section where there's a lot of cars stopped in this tunnel, creating a huge uh, barrier to traverse. And, of course, what happens is through a bit of rough driving, they get a flat tyre. So they have to change that tyre, and then in the in the light, you can see the shadows of these this mass of running people, running infected people, coming down the tunnel. And and that bit there, where they're trying to change the tyre, uh, in <laughs> in the fastest time possible to avoid this attack, is uh, is very 
sort of you know pit of your stomach sort of stuff and yeah so that's probably that's the most effective scene for me i really like that part and yeah on the whole it's a great horror movie in the, the fact that it uh yeah it, i like the lo-fi uh british element of it and and the way that danny boyle does his his films too gives it a, a very different flavor so Highly recommend it. They did do a sequel that was probably a little grander in scale, 28 weeks later. That's with Robert Carlyle, of course. Of uh, He was also in Train Spotting. He was also in Hamish Macbeth, I think it was called, a fairly popular UK show that it was on for many years. And he's been in many, many other uh, works as well over the years as well. So <clears throat> that's also a highly recommended movie. But you can't ever quite beat the first movie of... Uh, of a series for sort of setting the the scene and kind of the world building that happens so you're familiar with the events it, it kind of lays it all out for you the foundations of it i'm always a fan of of those movies uh, i'm not sure why i guess i just like that element that they've had to build the way the world is around that character even if it's an older character so i highly recommend that one and then, of course, I had to ask my, my dear mate, Eero, uh, what his favourite horrors were. And that is something I'll discuss very shortly. Okay, back again. <laughs> and then there was a phone call, which, you know, wasn't any point in taking. But it went over my other draft. This is just unbelievable. People don't seem to realise I'm making a podcast here. I'm not available for about an hour. <laughs> if only it was that easy. That'd be nice, wouldn't it? We get so much done in our own personal lives. Okay, so where was I? We were just talking about uh, 28 Days Later, and I was about to tell you about Eero's movies as well, because he is a, I would say, a contributor to the show, just in terms of overall feedback and and ideas and inspiration. Uh, And his were, in general, said basically the Alien and Predator movies which I can't help but agree with. They are fantastic. They kind of cross a few genres as well, as as do, you can safely say, a lot of horror movies. Um, you've got some straight-out horror movies that are, you know, slashes and psychological horrors, and, but they fall into many subcategories. And the wonderful thing with both of the, the Alien and the Predator franchises are that they are they're sci-fi. Now, I love sci-fi, as does Zero. They are, well, some of them are what you would call just a, a, an action movie through and through with elements of horror and with elements of sci-fi, and that's also a great mix if done well. And then you've got lots of other things in between. You could say that the, the first Alien movie is much more of a, a pure horror. It's got a lot of suspense. It's got a lot of... Uh, it's a little slower moving. But the, the actual science fiction in it is... It's sort of grounded in a nice, real feel. That's the oldest, of course, as well. Made in, I think, 79, perhaps. Please correct me if I'm wrong. I do do these off the cuff, so if I get it wrong, please feel free to pop the fact in there. Um, So it has that slightly industrial feel about it, but I love that. I love the model work that goes into those older sci-fi movies, also like practical effects. I think it still holds up too, if done well. 
much more than any CGI effects. I think a good practical effect will win any day because it really is a tangible thing and you can tell the difference. They're getting so much better, absolutely. But with movies like that, where you want it to feel real, you want the horror to be real, you know, you want the <laughs> the saliva dripping from the alien uh, head to, to feel like it's you're there and it is actually dripping on that that character I don't know why, that sounds disturbing but you, you know what I mean uh, the practical effects you just can't quite beat really and that's the wonderful thing with particularly the first three of the Alien movies and also probably I would say that the two Predator movies because Predators and The Predator uh, are both, they've both been released in the last 10 years so it's been in an age where there are a lot more digital effects now personally I'm a, I'm a really big fan of the first two Predator movies and I really enjoy the first three Alien movies, I do like Alien Resurrection I think it's a, a good movie but I'm not sure it it's, uh, gets right up into that same level of respect as the original three and I think they closed it off quite well Uh, the whole lot is quite depressing really I think they expanded so much on the first idea when they went into aliens and then alien three you have Ripley lieutenant Ellen Ripley in the first one and for that movie she's very much part of the crew and just starts to emerge as the main character throughout as everyone else gets killed off Um, But, of course, the striking scene from that... Well, there's several striking scenes, of course, but the the art is pretty distinct, and that's H.R. Geiger. Now, it could be uh, Giger and uh, Geiger. I'm not sure. So, also, if you know that pronunciation, feel free to let me know. I've always said H.R. Geiger, though. Uh, It's quite disturbing artwork. It's very phallic. Uh, If you've had a look at any of his other work that he has done, there's a lot of, of phallic symbolism in there, but I guess that gives it a sort of a twisted biomechanical kind of uh, character, and it, it does make it very distinct, and it has a vibe all of its own, and so he did that, that original art development for the Alien movie, and of course then that's been, has, has been what it's adopted since, because it is very, very much aside from a lot of other, I wouldn't say more typical designs, but yeah, it's just very distinct. So it's got a great, a great identity, the alien creature, but also the uh, spacecraft design, the planet design, even down to the corridors through the ship when they first discover it, the way that the egg looks, uh, the face hugger, the, the actual the way that it is a chest burster. Not sure he had all of those ideas, H.R. Geiger, but he certainly did the artwork. Now, the, the, the chest bursting scene, the original one with John Hurt, uh, John Hurt's character, uh, Kane, is uh, is just having a meal, and then all of a sudden it brings on the, I guess, the birth, we'll call it, where he's... At, got an attack of sort of violent spasms and has to get back on the table and and then it erupts from his chest and and the great thing about that learning from all of the making ofs and the documentaries around that original movie that was something that they hadn't discussed with the the crew uh, the with the cast 
at the time. They wanted it to be very much a, a surprise to, as to what was going to happen, what, how this thing was going to, to be born and reveal itself. And so after learning that, I watched that scene with a, a real appreciation of how pure the reaction is. Uh, because each of them looked truly shocked to see this thing rip out of his chest and spray them all with blood. I'm not sure if it was all the intention or it was just very lucky that they were able to have such an effective uh, shoot of that scene. But that's, that's a real standout moment and I think that that sets the tone for the horror element of the Alien movies. And uh, just to skip through, the, the Aliens movie uh, by James Cameron takes a slightly different edge where it goes for a more of a war movie, uh, an action movie kind of setup, but it's, it still keeps a very, very much that dark tone that the first one had set. And I think it, it carries it forward quite nicely into the new period. I mean, it was 85 that it was being made. I think 86 was released. And... It just it suits so well, and that's the movie that uh, I think that my friends and I would remember the most fondly, because as children, that's often the first Aliens movie you've seen, and then that's certainly the one that's had all the repeat viewings, because it's highly quotable, and also, I guess the different uh, parts of the movie stand out from the other. You just start to remember them all, and that was one of those ones where, as kids, you know, my brothers and I would would always choose that it would, it would be part of our when you go to hire uh, vhs uh, videotapes which you young people out there might not even have heard of the you used to be able to get a budget pack you know five for five dollars of a weekly uh type of video and that would often feature we would just grab that one every time because we always enjoyed it and you would watch it two or three times every week in a school holidays or, or you know, a long weekend, something like that, and never get sick of it. And then that was the thing that prompted play. You'd go make a gun that looks the same, or if you play Lego, you'd go away and make a Lego drop ship. And it sort of, it was the source of so much inspiration. So much inspiration. Uh, I think that's the one that really does stand out. Um, because, yeah, it, it has the ragtag motley crew of um, space marines that go to this planet that was supposed to be uh, settled by these colonists and developed to have an atmosphere. And, of course, that's the original planet where the, the first ship has, had landed, but the, the greedy, uh, twisted company has, has hidden some of those details and knows full well that there's a, a risk out there, but they, they are hoping to develop it into a biomechanical weapon. And it, I guess, as kids, you think it sounds so far-fetched. It probably isn't so far-fetched, really. The whole concept of a, a twisted corporation or government trying to get their hands on something at all costs. And, yeah, again, some great model work, a lot of miniature work to, to shoot uh, the APC troop carrier, the town sort of scenes, the the dropship scenes from the main ship, the, the main spaceship when it's when you first see it when it's coming up to the uh, the planet. There's some amazing model work there, and it really does stand the test of time too. It is distinctly from the 80s, but it has a, something that works. It doesn't look cheap and nasty and, and like some of the shows you probably can think of 
just off the top of your head where it is very much it just looks like something on string they've done it so nicely and so well that it has a, a really resonant quality that doesn't age very easily and it's yeah that's a, a really timeless quality to aliens i think that has kept it such an enjoyable classic Alien 3, as much as it was a very troubled production, they had a hard time trying to pull together a story and a budget that would suit it uh, without being either too grandiose or, I guess, too complicated. You know, it wouldn't be as faithful to the original original two installments so far. But they also wanted to give it a very different uh, feel, I guess, as well. So because 2 was so overloaded with the militaristic aspect they wanted to go the other way how do you fight a xenomorph without any significant weapons of any kind and so it's a prison planet that uh, Ripley Ripley crash lands on in an escape pod uh, for reasons unknown and uh, yeah I guess also the issue being a woman amongst a vastly male, well, it is all, an all-male population. So it has a sense of menace anyway without the creature being there regardless. And I, that really heightens the tension. And also, again, a, that lo-fi quality. So they went with something, I guess, a bit akin to the first one. And it has that slightly low-tech feel, but even more so. You know, they're, they're essentially stranded on a planet that occasionally gets a visit from a supply ship. And then other than that, they're just in this old shut-down smelter and ironworks, living out their existence as a a prison sentence or after they'd finished it. That's just their lifestyle now. And, yeah, it's it's some fantastic visuals. The overall atmosphere is really great. Uh, They had more grandiose ideas before. There was was talk of a wooden planet and a group of space monks and all this sort of stuff which all sounds wonderful but perhaps a little harder to translate to screen without seeming cheesy so i think the prison planet idea works exceptionally well uh, david fincher directed the third one and he was a sort of up-and-coming director at that time he wasn't as big a name as he is now he's also you know of course now done you know the social network and zodiac and Seven, of course, that was probably the the biggest. Uh, that was a while ago now, but that really brought him out to the the front of uh, the world stage in terms of the big directors and Fight Club, of course. So he's done a whole host of great uh, movies since then. But this was probably the first one, I think, after a, a slew of of music videos and similar projects where, yeah, it was a bit of a testing ground, and I think it really did run him through the gauntlet. Um, but I think he did very well. I think he probably had a lot of uh, production company interference and producer interference, sort of telling him what they wanted. So I think probably all things considered, he was able to still come up with something that really resonates as a, a fine piece of work all the same. And maybe people going back looking at it, and if, if you do enjoy going into the making of something and finding a bit more out about the process you'd appreciate the movie itself even more because of that and that knowledge that it was such a challenge to get to that point where you could say this is the finished product this is the movie <laughs> and we've done it with this budget and in this time frame 
it's got to be such a complicated business so the director does so many things and has to juggle so much so yeah that's for a long time that was my favorite and it's hard to say a clear favorite now but they all they're all fantastic movies resurrection did i think a good job in rebooting the idea whilst making it still a sequel it has a very different feel about it it's done by a french director who had done uh, city of lost children and delicatessen and several other quite quite famous french movies that have a very quirky kind of uh, sensibility about them and their particular visual style a little bit of a comedic uh well in delicatessen anyway i would say City of Lost Children is probably a little different again. I'm not sure I've ever seen the whole movie. But, yeah, it was sort of an untested genre, I think, to come into. So I think he did very well, given that. Uh, but it, it just doesn't quite have the same effect that the, the original three tend to have. They do seem like they're a collective, even with their differences in style and delivery. It, it just... I think because they were still within the same... 10 year sort of 10 12 year period of time they seem like they group together well better than than that one in addition to it so yeah i highly recommend giving them a look and and view them as a horror movie as well and perhaps how someone in 1979 and 1986 would view it because you had a lot of slashes in the 80s uh like the halloweens and friday the 13th etc but it, probably these are unique in the fact that they're they are space horrors they're sci-fi horrors which uh, brings us to of course predator as well now predator the first movie you could say in its horror elements it's more about that creature being the horrific part of it it is an action movie really uh with a, a, a smattering of sci-fi because of the the nature of the creature and where it's from it just hints that it's there to hunt um, it goes to hot places on different planets, I'm guessing as well, but hot places of the Earth to find violent people and to, to hunt out, I suppose, the best specimens of that kind to take trophies, which is, in this case, their skull. Um, and so it's got this great tribal aspect to it where they come down as a, a lone warrior and like a, a testing ground to prove their metal and prove their skill that's what they do so uh, that only reveals itself gradually of course in the first movie it's an arnie vehicle and he's actually fantastic in it it's one of his best really because it suits his slapstick uh one-liner delivery that he, he puts throughout in, in a couple of different sections but it also has enough of an intense vibe about it where it doesn't just seem like one of the slapstick crappy <laughs> actioners of, of uh, other things that he's done as well and other movies and other actors have, have done in the past the creature design is so good that it gives the movie a whole different quality than quite possibly could have it had originally had a different creature design and Van Damme was the person that was actually dressed as the predator and running around in the jungle there uh, and from what I've seen of sketches, I'm not sure I've seen an actual photo or still of the suit that they intended to use, but it's definitely not what you can imagine being an iconic film villain. Let's call it a villain, a film monster, film creature. It definitely wouldn't have stayed the course 
and been something you remembered. It just would have been another, a bit of a B, B-rate kind of movie creature that you remember fondly, but not with the same kind of reverence that we do with the Predator movies and the Alien movies. So uh, Stan Winston, I think, after discussions with James Cameron, funnily enough, decided uh, James Cameron made a maybe a throwaway comment about wanting to see something with mandibles, and uh, Stan Winston took that on board <laughs> and came up with the the Predator sketch, which I'm sure was refined more so, but that gives it its very distinctive jaw that is revealed later. Uh, it's wearing a, a bit of a sleek space mask for a lot of it, and then it's revealed later that that's, it is just a mask. It takes it off, and you see this sort of reptilian. It's, it's somewhere between some kind of lizard, a crustacean of sorts, and a humanoid. And, yeah, so the head, is, it looks like the, the body of a crab almost. And you've got the, the face with those mandibles as the jaw, the reptilian eyes, and then, you know, it's a huge body. It's probably a seven-foot-plus body. And so he drew those, and it's got this Rastafarian uh, kind of dreadlocks as well. But it, it just works. It just seems to work. It's a fantastic creature design that holds up beautifully. And see so many people doing sketches of them now, and, and every time you see it, it, you just you know exactly what it is, and it just conjures up all those great memories. Uh, I won't go into too much detail. I think the hor- the horror elements of the Predator movies are the nature of what it does is it comes down to hunt the the dangerous examples of man, but then it skins them, and that's probably the part where it's a little shocking to begin with. You realise that it's actually completely skinned them, hung them upside down to bleed them out, and then will remove the skull to polish up and keep as a trophy. I suppose it's those elements where if that was a human uh, serial killer, bad guy, or something similar, it would be very horrific and very disturbing. I think because it's an alien, it gives it a little bit of a disconnect from that kind of horror, but it's still horrific. You think, it just does this. This is just part of its process. And that's terrifying in itself. So that's probably the scariest element, plus the fact that it's got high-tech weaponry. So it's very much out strips the human soldiers that are against it but I guess that's we love an underdog story you want to see the underpowered uh, underskilled humans work out some way to outsmart the the predator through it and I guess that's where we need Arnie to come in and work his magic so that's a very effective uh, the way that it plays out later in the movie starts very much as a an action movie uh, with interspersed with these horrific scenes and and elements, but then later in the movie, it's something else entirely when it's just him and he has to prepare for his fight against the Predator. That is pretty cool. It takes on a a different kind of tone about it and it's very primal and I think that's where it becomes quite distinct from perhaps other action movies. So that's a fantastic one. Now, the the second one, I won't talk about the, the later two so much because I don't think they fully fit the, the horror building. I think they are more an action movie. It just happened to have this famous uh, movie monster in it. The second one, I feel, is almost almost up to the standard of the first. It doesn't have Arnie in it. It has a Danny Glover as the main character, as Lieutenant Harrigan. And uh, he is a, a Los Angeles police detective. 
in a, it was, at that point it was a near future so it was set in 1997 the movie itself was made in 92 uh, but they're painting a bit of a bleak picture of the city because I guess 92 if you think about what LA was like at that time it was really going through some violent some violent times in its history and you had the the Rodney King beatings and the, the riots and a lot of the gang violence now throughout South Central LA and, and similar areas so I guess at that time they thought it was probably a very realistic portrayal of how they saw it going in a few short years uh, looking back now it's nice to know that it did improve so yeah set in a near future LA where really the gangland violence has taken over every element of city life he is a, a hard-bitten kind of cop and he doesn't take any crap and this young brash version of the predator which it has different colorings it has some different weaponry and that's the great thing about that idea is that it can be the, the different individuals that can bring into the movie setting can be different so in movies where you know batman has a different suit every time it just seems a little bit gratuitous you just think oh yeah let's give him this this time let's give him nipples like that's in batman and robin but it made sense for the predator redesign because you could say well this is a different a slightly different species he's from a different tribe he's young and brash and arrogant and he's coming to the middle of the city to make a bit of a show of his hunt and he's not so fussed about this being a bit more secretive so it's revealed through some uh, a sort of, i guess a surprise attack on a gang a cuban gang uh in a in a building and it's all over very very quickly and i guess they don't understand what's going on uh the lieutenant has his suspicions but there's so much uh, unknown about it that they start to investigate. So it's a bit of a police detective drama, but it, then it's got these elements of the gangs that are the gang violence coming up because yeah, there's a voodoo Jamaican, well, they do voodoo magic, but there's a Jamaican gang, there's the Cuban gang, they're, they're fighting each other. Then there's other gangs involved as well. And so it's interspersed with, with bouts of bursts of violence and also the uh, the investigative if that's the word I always get that wrong elements of the movie as well where they're trying to work out what the hell it is and the, the tone of the movie is great it, it does seem like a really hot and sweaty year uh, everyone's got sweat patches on their back and arms and everything and it just looks uncomfortable it looks like a really unpleasant place to be uh, a great little throwback or way of matching it up with Aliens is that Bill Paxton is in it. He was Hudson in Aliens, and then in this he shows up as a as a, a, a new, fairly fresh-faced detective who really wants to get in, right into the thick of it. And he's great in that role as well. So that's a nice little link between the two series. And, yeah, so it sort of it plays out, I guess, until, of course, you're faced with the, the showdown between Harrigan and... This, this young predator that's there to... He's in town with a few days to kill, as the tagline is. It's a great tagline. And, yeah, it, I think it stands alone. It, it has a similar... It plays out in a similar way to the first movie. But then the nature of it and the, the character of the movie is quite different. 
to the first one and I think that that's where Predator 2 works really well and, and that's why it's almost as strong. The the next two in line sort of I think they borrow quite heavily from from both to the point where they don't really have their own distinct kind of flavour. There's good ideas um, but they don't stand alone quite as well as the Predator 1 and 2 so that's why I, I'm choosing not to speak of them. Uh, Eero might feel differently but I don't think so. I think he's probably referring to the earlier one most particularly. So they're his favourite and that, and that brings me up to, well getting close to the end, I think this is, it's been quite a long episode and I'm almost at my destination. I'll talk briefly about my favourite horror. I, I've sort of skirted between a couple and I think I'll name all three. Uh, one is The Thing and that's the original version with uh, Kurt Russell and it was 1978, I think, that it was made. It didn't do particularly well at the time. This has often been the case with John Carpenter Productions when they're first released. But it's become one of those enduring hits where it's just had a slow build but now maintains its its fan base and has a bit of a cult following. And the thing is set in Antarctica at the US base in Antarctica where there's the discovery of something uh, under the snow that's apparently fallen there many, many years ago, you know, thousands of years ago, dormant, lying dormant, waiting for the presence of another biological uh, specimen to infect and then warp and twist its, its uh, biological makeup and sort of become a creature in its own rights. It's a little hard to grasp that idea just because it's so outlandish, but it's as a visual thing and as an effects movie, it's brilliant and very effective given its age. The special effects are practical effects and they are still some of the best practical effects you'll see. So just in relation to seeing horror effects done superbly well, the thing is worth the watch alone, but it's it is acted well. It has a fantastic, sparse soundtrack that I think John Carpenter oversaw, and perhaps even he might have done some of that one, but I don't, I'm not sure he did actually do this one. Um, and so it suits the setting. It suits that that desolate Antarctic setting. It also suits the tone of the movie that it's trying to set, and it really does make it feel very bleak as a picture so but the but the acting is fantastic and the sense of paranoia and the sense of isolation that it evokes are really powerful as well i remember watching it i think for the first time properly uh by myself it was on i think in the middle of the night and i sort of switched across channels and found it and found myself sitting there watching it until it was done and felt quite weird afterwards but I think that's the sign of an effective movie. Same thing happened with the Texas Chainsaw Massacre when we watched that as uh, teenagers at uh, Euro's house and came away thinking you know we're just in a very strange mood, a very strange place afterwards. It just had that effect and again that makes it an effective horror movie but the thing is superb in that way. Kurt Russell's a strong uh, lead character as, as he often is it has a lot of charisma and he's able to to uh, carry off different roles really well so he's very good in that role um, 
as is everyone else. But like I said, a lot of paranoia and uh, and suspicion starts to grow as to who might be infected with this, who is real, who is genuine, and who is this thing. And that's where it's the most chilling, I guess. And yeah, so that's definitely up there for me. I won't elaborate too much, but I highly recommend it watching it for the setting and the, the special effects alone. It's just very effective. The Descent uh, is also something that I'm a, a big fan of. It's a Neil Marshall film. Now, he's done Dog Soldiers. He did Centurion. Uh, and he's just recently done Hellboy, the new Hellboy movie. Now, I'm not, I'm not very familiar with Dog Soldiers. I have watched Centurion. It didn't grab me very strongly uh i haven't watched hellboy yet i'm curious to see what it's like he also did another one i think it was now i can't think of it doomsday that's right a higher budget uh post-apocalyptic movie which was good but didn't again just wasn't as effective as perhaps i hoped it would be uh thankfully the descent is not one of those uh middle of the road movies for me it's a it's an extremely effective and sparse experience where there's a particular the main character has had a catastrophic loss in her life so she's already a damaged person uh her group of friends group around her and they do enjoy doing extreme sports and different adventurous uh outings and things together so in the year after this catastrophic event they take her to somewhere i think in the appalachians is where it's set to go caving in a in known system and i thought caving's scary <laughs> right from the off but what they don't realize is that the main planning person the person who's been responsible for organizing this trip and and where they were going to go has taken them into an actual system that wasn't mapped and hasn't been fully explored and wants them to be able to explore it and name it now the intentions i guess you could say were good but but the misleading of them and the fact that they don't have an accurate map of the system of course leads to further trouble and there's a few events that lead to having to go further into the system as uh, rather than being able to get out easily and so that heightens that that sense of claustrophobia and uncertainty and paranoia i guess of of course as well where they're not really sure if they can trust her now it's a group of girls a group of of ladies down there and i think that really adds to the feel as well i think they the actors must have bonded before they started making the, the movie because they do really bring across that sense of camaraderie really well um and they seem like they've been friends for years so that d- does give the film this sense of realism that's very effective um and you know it would be great to see all movies where they have a you know, group of people have that kind of chemistry because yeah it was very effective and, and uh suited the the story behind the movie but uh not to go into too much detail because i did love my first experience of the movie and that was because i didn't have any idea what it was about euro and i were at the cinema we i think spontaneously decided to see something this movie called the descent which we hadn't seen any promos of hadn't seen anything about was screening at the time that we wanted to actually catch a movie and that's the entire reason why we went in uh 
and reluctantly too, because I normally like to kind of have a bit of a, an advanced look at what's screening and, and get an idea roughly what's going to be about. So this was a, a complete cold start, if you like, on this experience. And that was what made it brilliant because it, through these events going into the cave, the, the drama at the start, it started to reveal itself as this slightly disquieting movie and then it also then shows that deep down in the cave all of a sudden you get this scene where you see something in there with them uh, and it turns out to be humanoid creatures that have been down there for who knows how long and developed in the dark of this cave system and they're blind with a highly highly sensitive uh, sense of smell and um, they can sort of climb the walls and roof. And so when you first see that happening, it's quite terrifying as well. And then in this low light setting where a lot of it, I think, was shot using only the lights they had on them, which I think it gives it a really good sense of realism. Instead of having these mysterious studio lights shining from some unknown spot, we would think, well, they're in the middle of the ground. They're not going to have any light source other than, say, a head torch or a flare or something like that. So I think that's what he incorporated into it, which, which makes it work really, really well. And the ensuing uh, clash with, with this group of creatures and the group of friends is really cool, very effective and very scary. There's a lot of jump moments. There's a lot of creep out moments. You're kind of holding the edge of the seat and it proved to be a fantastic movie and that stands still as one of my favourites. So those three movies, um, did I say the three movies? <laughs> Isn't it silly when you forget what you're talking about? So The Thing, The Descent, and then I was going to say something else, and I've completely lost what I'm talking about. Dear, dear, dear. Oh, no, that's right, because I didn't talk about it. That's right. It's just come back to me. Thank you very much. So I'll skip uh, quickly to Sinister. Sinister is one that I've since rewatched, and and the scares are probably less effective on subsequent viewings. But Sinister is a great; it's a great example of of low key filmmaking that is very creepy. Uh, Ethan Hawke is in it, and he acts extremely well. He's a uh, an author who's had some massive success writing true crime, but is trying to recapture that success with a subsequent release about ten years later, after that the first successful book and he's had a lot of books since but just haven't gotten to that level uh but in an effort to do that he's moved his family into the scene into a house that is the scene of a fairly grisly and mysterious murder uh the result of which there's a missing child uh and i guess through the discovery of a box of uh eight millimeter film in the attic and a whole setup to be able to watch it he pieces together the fact that there are other murders happening that are very, very similar in nature to the one that he is at the scene of and starts to try and piece together this information to work out who might be responsible. And, and then it takes on a slightly different angle where it does become supernatural, but not in a way where you lo it loses its credibility. It just makes it more creepy. And I think the way that they use the scares in it is very effective. They also use uh, non-supernatural uh, situations in a couple of them where 
it's very effective because you're just you're waiting for something to happen anyway. So when something happens that is still of the earth and, and earthly, it's still scary because it's still a moment that makes you jump in your chair. So it has some great moments like that. It has some wonderful creep out moments. And just the nature of the crimes themselves are unsettling. And it definitely puts that weird sense of uh, unreality in your mind when you watch it and you come away afterwards feeling a bit weird. (laughs) But I think that's, again, that's the sign of a great movie. So those three movies, I think, of the recent recent years and also of the past the thing the descent and sinister are definitely my favorites now that brings us to the end of that i i might continue talking about horror movies or movies in general in in subsequent episodes um like i did with the the music one it it can be something that you never get tired of discussing because there's always new releases, there's always favourites, there's always debate over different movies and what you want to see from them. And people love to, to talk about them. It's, it, it is good. It gives you fuel for conversation all the time. So there's always something going on. So if you have any anything to add to today's conversation, to today's podcast, please send me a comment here on Podbean or feel free to message me on my Instagram, Swamp Bastard Guitars, and say hi. You know, you don't have to go into detail about who you are. If you'd rather not, you can just let me know you're a listener and uh, any particular episode you enjoyed or anything you'd like to hear about more, any reflections on something. And yeah, again, like today, give me your favourite horror movie. Give me your favourite movie and and I I can incorporate that into a future episode. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you have a great day or night or evening, whatever you're up to. Be safe, be well and uh, be happy and, you know, do something fun for yourself just to, yeah, just to remind yourself of, of what you enjoy. And I will talk to you very soon. I hope you enjoyed today and, yeah, I look forward to talking to you again very, very soon. It's me checking out. Have a great day. See you later. Well, you made me weak, and you made me moan. Well, you caused me to leave, child, my happy home. But someday, baby, you ain't worry my life anymore.
Well, you made me weak, and you made me bone. 